it is very easy for any candidate that wants to run for president to come here without high name recognition and without a great deal of money and just being willing to wear out a few pair of shoes walking up and down the main streets in a state, connecting with the voters who are engaged in this process and trying to convince them that that individual deserves the voters' support. And it is very easy for any American citizen that is qualified to run for president and any fourth grader that grew up with a dream, I want to grow up and be president of the United States, to come to this state and try and make it happen. You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. This is a podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. Welcome to the voting booth. And this focus of this episode is on the New Hampshire presidential primary, the first in the country. Our guest today is David Scanlon, the New Hampshire Secretary of State, who oversees elections in New Hampshire as the chief election official. He previously served as a deputy secretary of state for 20 years, and he was elected to a two-year term as secretary of state by the New Hampshire state legislature in December of 2022. He also served in the New Hampshire House of Representatives from 1984 to 2002, becoming majority leader. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for joining the voting booth and agreeing to discuss the new upcoming New Hampshire primary. That's well, great to be here. Thank you. John, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk a little bit about the history of the primary, and then we'll get into some of the details of the upcoming primary. Yes. I mean, Secretary, I think many uh, of our listeners and certainly many Americans know that, that New Hampshire plays a very important part of the presidential primary process, the first primary. Can you tell us a little bit about the history, generally how far it goes back, when it became first and sort of iconic in its way, and, and other things related to, to history that will help us understand this coming 2024 primary? Well, New Hampshire has held the first in the nation presidential primary since 1920. And back in that time frame, actually in the late 1800s, 1890s, there was a lot of general election reform taking place across the country. That's when most of the states went to a secret ballot uh, form of vote, as opposed to taking ballots into the polling places that were actually created by political parties or candidates or other organizations. And the ballot was actually the ticket into the polling place. So if you've heard the term, vote the party ticket, when a voter would go into a polling place holding that ticket, it was pretty obvious to everybody else in the room how that individual was voting. There were also problems related to buying votes, bribery, you know, giving liquor to people that voted the right way. And so going to the secret ballot sponsored by the state actually eliminated a lot of those problems and issues and really dramatically improved elections. So in New Hampshire, there was a farmer that lived in Richmond, New Hampshire, along the Massachusetts border, kind of close to Vermont. And he wrote New Hampshire's presidential primary law in 1913, actually 110 years ago. And New Hampshire held its first presidential primary in 1916, when very few other states were actually holding primaries. And at that time, there were two other states that had presidential primaries. One of them, I believe it was Indiana, actually went before New Hampshire. And the other state, I don't recall which one it was, went on the same day as New Hampshire. At that time, New Hampshire's presidential primary was held at the Marchtown meeting to, to coincide with when the towns came together 
and elected their local officers. By 1920, however, Indiana decided to move its primary further back into the calendar, and the other state decided to go back to a caucus format. And so that left New Hampshire by default as the first in the nation presidential primary. And we maintained that status without any issues into the 1950s. And then with the advent of television, all of a sudden, what happened in New Hampshire was really big news. And the the, uh, television networks were able to cover who won the New Hampshire primary. And uh, there was a lot of attention and focus directed at the state. And it wasn't long before other states uh, thought, hey, you know, we ought to we ought to try and get in on that picture and get some of that attention as well. And so ever since that time, there have been attempts by other states to jump ahead of New Hampshire. In 1976, it might have been 1975, State Senator Jim Splane actually wrote a law designed to protect the New Hampshire primary. And that law said that New Hampshire's presidential primary should go at least seven days before any similar event. And that law is going on 50 years old now. And, you know, it was really successful in maintaining our position because as as other states tried to move up and jump ahead of New Hampshire, we actually left having our New Hampshire primary on the same day as town meeting. And, you know, it, it has moved as early as early January in past elections. Can I interrupt? Because I, I have in front of me, I, I think this is the exact text of the law, unless it's there have been slightly different versions. But what I have is that the presidential primary election shall be held on the second Tuesday in March or on a date selected by the Secretary of State, which is seven days or more immediately preceding the date on which any other state shall hold a similar election, whichever is earlier. And, you know, as you were just indicating, you Early on, that March 2nd date might have been holding, but various years, some other states were trying to jump ahead of you. And, and I, I don't remember which year it was, but one year we were actually quite close where Iowa and New Hampshire, not too far away from New Year's Day early in, in, in January, sort of an arms race to get as early as possible. Is, is, there, is that still the, the law that we're talking about? That's the same, that's the same law. Yeah. And, and the trick is, it, you know, it, it places that responsibility on the Secretary of State in New Hampshire to make the decision on when that date is going to be. And, you know, depending on all the variables involved, that that can be a tremendous amount of pressure on the individual that is charged with that responsibility. So, Mr. Secretary, you know, because it is the first in the, in the nation, the presidential primary, could you give us a sense about the amount of attention candidates give to New Hampshire and the personal contact with voters? Let me start by saying why it is important that New Hampshire hold the first in the nation presidential primary. And it's, you know, I mean, it is embedded in our statute and we have a long tradition and a long history with it, but there are some very important reasons why New Hampshire should maintain that role. And it's not because we're not racially diverse enough. I mean, that's a convenient argument that other states can make. And I I would quickly argue back that there is no state that demographically truly reflects the makeup of this country and there is no state that is more American than any other state in this country. What makes New, New Hampshire unique and well-suited for the status is, first of all, we are a small state geographically, and we have a small population of about 1.4 million voters. There are many cities in New Hampshire that are 
larger than our state population. But because of that, it is very easy for any candidate that wants to run for president to come here without high name recognition and without a great deal of money and just being willing to wear out a few pair of shoes walking up and down the main streets in the state, connecting with the voters who are engaged in this process and trying to convince them that that individual deserves the voters' support. And it is very easy for any American citizen that is qualified to run for president and any fourth grader that grew up with a dream, I want to grow up and be president of the United States, to come to this state and try and make it happen. We have a one-page declaration of candidacy where the voter simply has to swear that they meet the U.S. constitutional requirements to be president, 35 years of age, a natural-born United States citizen, and having lived in the country for at least seven years, and pay a $1,000 filing fee, and that's it. And if a voter can prove that they're indigent, that they can't afford the $1,000, all they have to do is collect signatures from 10 voters in each of the 10 New Hampshire counties, and they can submit that in lieu of the the $1,000 filing fee. So in this upcoming primary election, we have 21 candidates on the Democratic ballot, and we have 24 candidates on the Republican ballot. And I don't think that there's any other state that matches that degree of participation by candidates on the presidential primary ballot. And this is a place that just gives an opportunity for anybody that wants to run for that office to be able to come here and try and make it happen. Now, I I heard an apocryphal story, or maybe not an apocryphal story, maybe it's a real story. I think it was Mo Udall when running for president and and somebody asked a voter in New Hampshire, well, why aren't you going to vote for him? And he said, well... I've only met him twice or three times. I don't know what the answer is. So I don't know if that's if you know the, the truth of that story, but I guess it proves the point that voters really do believe they're going to interact with your major presidential candidates. Voters believe they're going to be able to interact with the major presidential candidates. And the candidates come frequently, and it is easy for a voter to meet a candidate multiple times. And, you know, the candidates come to New Hampshire and they engage in the grassroots politics and they will go into individuals' living rooms and meet with voters. And as as a candidate obtains more and more support in the state, it becomes harder to meet in just a living room. They, you know, they end up going to larger venues. But in most cases, candidates, whether they win or lose, when they come back to New Hampshire and talk about their experience, will say that that the type of campaigning that takes place in this state actually made them better candidates for the campaigning that that follows, you know, leading up to the, the national convention. So Secretary Scanlon, I just wanted to follow up a little bit. Because New Hampshire's first in the nation is sort of in statute, you know, when you took this job or was elected into the position, is there a lot of pressure to monitor and just make sure that that New Hampshire is going to be first in the nation because we all know that a set date is difficult enough to administer an election or to oversee it. But if there's always a chance that you have to move it earlier and earlier, does that add pressure to your position? And how do, how do you deal with it? Well, it does add pressure, although this time around, the pressure for me was not that great because both political parties in New Hampshire strongly support the the New Hampshire presidential primary. And so they, you know, they put a lot of faith and trust in my ability to follow the calendar in other states and 
when the time was right, set the date. The, the interesting thing about setting the date is even with my predecessor, Bill Gardner, who served 46 years as Secretary of State through many, many presidential primary cycles, never had to change the date once it was set. He was that good at, at just following the moving parts and knowing when the time was right to do that. I had the benefit of serving as his deputy for 20 years, so a lot of that was rubbed off on me. But it, the dynamics and the variables could change to where the pressure could become very great. And, and it came close to that in this election cycle when the Democrats in Iowa decided to move away from a traditional caucus and have a mail-in form of voting, which starts looking a lot like a primary. And to the extent that, that they were going to do that on the same day as the traditional Republican caucus in Iowa on January 15th, that would have forced New Hampshire to potentially jump ahead of the Iowa caucuses. And fortunately, that didn't happen. And, you know, that situation was was averted. But if they had followed through with that initial plan, there would have been a tremendous amount of pressure to, you know, to do other things. So it, it just depends on what's happening in any given presidential primary nomination cycle. Now, we're, I think we're going to spend much of the rest of the podcast talking about how you run elections generally in New Hampshire and, and, and how the Republican primary is going to look. The Democratic primary is going forward. We have an incumbent in office, but there is this question that, it, that affected Iowa and maybe affects Nevada after you and, and that the Democratic, the National Democratic Party, aside from the, the state party in New Hampshire, has tried to put a new calendar in place, which is essentially moving Iowa and New Hampshire off of their status as first caucus and first primary. New Hampshire is going forward with its Democratic caucus on the same day as its Republican caucus. I think the president is not looking to, to participate in that. Can you say a little bit about the, the tensions here where maybe this election, I think perhaps because we have an incumbent and maybe there's not as much focus on the Democratic primary, that it won't come to a head as much. But ultimately, if the Democratic Party wants to move this, and yet there's a there's a state law that, that, that one party or the other is going to have to pass or keep, keep in place. Tell us about the tensions between this idea that Democrats may just be moving their calendar in another direction to what might happen in the, in the New Hampshire scenario. I think that the fact that, that the National Democratic Party is trying to move New Hampshire out of you know, the initial, you know, the first of the nation status is unfortunate. As I mentioned earlier, there are 21 candidates that are running on the Democratic ballot. And so every candidate that wanted to run in the New Hampshire primaries is on the ballot here, except for the incumbent president. I know that there is a, an initiative to run a significant write-in campaign for him. I suspect that the White House is a little bit concerned about you know, how this is going because there have been surrogates, some, some nationally uh, known Democratic surrogates that have been coming into the state to encourage the write-in effort. And, you know, based on that and how well the voters in New Hampshire are engaging, I, it, there's no question that whether we fit into the DNC political calendar or not, New Hampshire is still incredibly relevant in this process. And the primary that we hold on January th 23rd is going to have an impact on the calendar that follows. So, I think we just stay the course and do what we do best, and we will maintain this position, hopefully for the next hundred years. 
So Secretary Scanlon, could you talk a little bit about the administration of the primary and, and how the re- election will run? You know, what are the registration and voting options and sort of generally how will the citizens of New Hampshire vote in this primary system? And maybe just as a follow-up, just big picture how New Hampshire runs elections all the time, but then also focusing on uh, primaries and some of the differences. New Hampshire has kept its election process simple, and it is very easy for uh, voters, potential voters, to register to vote in the state. Uh, we have election day voter registration, so any voter who wants to vote in, a, in the presidential primary or any other election who is not already on the checklist can get on the checklist on the day of the election and then proceed to vote. In the primary, the registered Republicans can vote on the Republican primary ballot and registered Democrats can vote on the Democratic primary ballot. But then the third and largest block of voters that we have in this state, the undeclared voters, have the option of walking into the polling place and declaring a party, voting in that party's primary. And then if they choose, they can change back to undeclared on the way out of the polling place. So it's a semi-open process, and and those voters that are not affiliated with a party can make a decision, you know, which way they want to participate on the day of the primary election. And just to be clear, a Democrat who wanted to change their registration to become a Republican, it was possible, but that deadline has passed for, for this election. Is that right? And, and vice versa. The opportunity for registered members of a political party to change their party affiliation before any primary election, whether it's the presidential primary or state primary, has to make that change before the filing period for offices opens. Once we start taking declarations of candidacy from candidates, the the ability to change party affiliation has ended. And then on the voting process, again, just maybe this is more generally about New Hampshire, not just the primary, but give us a sense of sort of the rough mix of people voting by mail, people voting well, early, maybe not as much an option, or voting on election day. What, what's the mix of that? Or what are the options for people to vote in New Hampshire? Most voters go to the polls on the day of the election to vote. New Hampshire does not have any type of early voting other than absentee voting with an excuse. You have to be either absent or uh, have a disability that prevents you from getting to the polling place to be able to vote by absentee. The legislature has to define subcategories of those reasons, but I would say 90% of the voters will show up at the polls on the day of the election, and roughly 10% of the voters in New Hampshire vote by absentee. Could you talk a little bit about running an election with so many small towns, that process of voting and then the results coming back to the state? New Hampshire is one of the, just a handful of states that are exempt from the National Voter Registration Act of 1993. And the system that we have is that we don't have, and, and we do not have county election organizations. We have 309 polling places that are spread out over roughly 220 uh, municipalities. And each one of those polling places elects locally a moderator, a clerk, three supervisors of the checklist, and three selectmen. So the officials are actually running the individual polling places or individuals that have been elected to do that job by their neighbors. 
because the polling places are designed by municipality, we have some of the largest polling places in the country. Towns like Merrimack or Bedford might have 18 to 20,000 voters that potentially could go through a polling place on the day of the election. And then we have some of the smallest. You probably heard of Dixville Notch, which, you know, in the past has had their voting at midnight. Everybody in the in the hamlet votes and then and then they close the polls. But it is the members of the community locally that actually run the polling places. And then depending on how many voters are going through, they will enlist the volunteers that they need to help just handle the volume that goes through. When a person registers to vote in New Hampshire, they have to do it in front of their local election official. So they either have to register with the town clerk or the supervisors of the checklist. And the supervisors of the checklist in New Hampshire are the only elected individuals in a community that can put names on the voter checklist or take names off of the voter checklist. So the participation is is very local. It is very transparent. And that's why I believe that the voters in New Hampshire still have a high degree of confidence that the elections here are well run and that they can count on the results that are reported at the end of the election night after the polls close. And so uh, just following up on Don's question, I was actually in New Hampshire one election night a number of years ago where a Senate race was called by the networks one direction and then actually ultimately was uncalled and recalled in the other direction. And at least some people attributed it to the difficulty of trying to measure by polls and other ways, all of the small towns and the small town vote kind of came in drib by drib. Do we expect that uh, on election night, on, on primary night, that the results will be in that night? Will they come in? What, is that pattern of small towns coming in in different ways uh, still something you look at? What, when should we expect to start to see the types of results, final results in terms of the, of the polls on election night? I know it depends on how close it is, but generally speaking. Well, the, the results will be reported uh, on the night of the election. And for presidential primary, it's actually two elections, one to determine the Republican nominee, the other is the Democratic election to determine the, the Democratic nominee. But there's only one race on each ballot, and it's vote for one. So I would expect that even with a write-in effort on behalf of the, the, the president, the results will still be reported by the end of the night. What happens in New Hampshire, though, is that the towns, the, the moderator in each town, once he, he or she announces the results, will post the results at the polling place. And that's usually where the networks, the, the media networks, get the information that they need to report uh, what's happening in New Hampshire at the end of the night. The S- Secretary of State does not get involved in the uh, election night reporting. What happens then is once the polls have closed and the moderator has announced the results, the moderator will fill out a return of votes form, which has the numbers of votes that each candidate received being the same numbers that were reported by the moderator on the night of the election at the polling place. And he will make sure that that return of votes gets dropped off at a central location in New Hampshire. And then the state police in New Hampshire will go around and pick up the return of votes from every drop-off location and then deliver those to the Secretary of State in the very early morning hours of the following day. And then the staff in my office will immediately start to sort the returns out and compile the results in aggregate form so that we can see what the overall results look like statewide as quickly as possible. 
And then in terms of the what we see in terms of the the we're actually not technically voting for presidential candidates as much as we're voting for delegates that go to the Republican and the National and Convention and the Democratic National Convention. The translation of the popular vote results into delegate counts. I know that's some something of a party function, but can you say something about your role or the or the state's role of counting and getting a final count and when when those numbers might come out informally or formally, what's and and who those people are and how they're selected. What's 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 the process for for that? Well, we will try and come up with the what I'll call certified results by the end of the day after the election. But those numbers are very important because the delegates that are assigned to the candidates are are awarded on the basis of the percentage of vote that the candidate received in the primary. Our state law says that a candidate needs at least 10% of the vote to be eligible for delegates. And then the delegates are awarded based on the percentage of the vote that the candidate got or received above that 10%. And then any delegates that are left over after that award to make up for the candidates that receive less than 10%, there's usually three or four of those delegates left over. They are then awarded to the winner of the New Hampshire primary as a bonus, basically. The Democrats, because this is a, a the nomination, we're talking about nominating candidates for a party, for a political party, the parties do get to come up with the rules that, that they want to see applied to. And so the Democrats have a different formula that is different from the formula that is in the state statute followed by the Republicans, I believe their threshold is 15% before a candidate can receive delegates. But then the delegates are still awarded on the basis of how many, you know, what percentage of the vote the delegate received. The Democrats also have a have a, a way to award superdelegates to the national conventions, which is kind of outside of the, the voting process. Those are individuals that might be the chairman of the Democratic Party, the Democratic National Committee members are automatic delegates to the National Convention. So their process is, is a little bit different. And the actual names of the delegates, that those people are selected to be delegates by the parties. The state's not involved in that part at all, but the numbers come out of the process that the state certifies. Right. That's right. I think we've reached really a great point where both our, our listeners, but certainly many other viewers and potential voters in New Hampshire understand both how they can vote and how you run the process. You know, we'd like to close this podcast as we always do with two questions. Uh, I'll ask the first one and then Don can ask the second one. The first one is, how did you get into elections? And then if you were able to talk to your pre-election self, now that you know all you know, what would you tell that that pre, pre-election self? Well, the job of Secretary of State is one that is very unique. And there is no college preparatory course that you can take for this job. I mean, many secretaries of states are attorneys. Some are, you know, have political science degrees, but there is no career path you can take in college for secretary of state. My path is actually quite unique. I graduated from college with with a degree in forestry and came to New Hampshire with a job, and I became involved politically when there were a couple of environmental issues that were before the state legislature and really important to me. So I decided to participate in public speaking and testifying before the various environmental committees. And 
I kind of took a liking to it and decided to run for state representative. I had held elective office locally on planning boards and conservation commissions, but it was that participation in the state legislature that just increased my interest in elections. I got to know Bill Gardner, the Secretary of State. We became good friends. And when when his longtime deputy decided to retire, Bill asked me if I would come on as his Deputy Secretary of State. And I decided to make that jump. And it has been a learning process for me ever since. It still is. There's a lot of learning that takes place on the, on the job. And I don't know that there is anything that I would look at in the past and say, you know, would I have done something differently? It's just, you know, it's a very exciting position to have. I thoroughly enjoy it. I'm always learning. And I think as long as that's the case, I, you know, I'll be interested in continuing on if the legislature sees fit to keep electing me. But uh, that, that's how I, how I got to where I am today. So elections can be actually very humorous at times. And over the course of your career, I'm sure there have been funny or unusual events that have occurred. Could you share the funniest or most unusual event that sticks in your mind with the listeners? Well, there's usually great events that, that occur with the presidential primary. And, and even just the filing process is, is amusing. I can remember that when D- Donald Trump came in to file before he was elected the first time, his advance team contacted the woman in our office that answers the, the campaign questions for president. And the question she was asked is, what does Mr. Trump need to be able to file for president? And Paula said, well, you have to fill out the Declaration of Candidacy, and then you have to pay the filing fee either in cash or by a bank check. And the person responded, well, Mr. Trump does not use bank checks. He writes a personal check. And Paula said it's either cash or a bank check. So when Donald Trump showed up to file, he pulled an envelope out of his jacket pocket and pulled out a check and and held it up. And he said, you know, I was told that that I had to pay with a with a bank check. And here it is, he said, but I want everybody to know that my personal account has more money in it than this bank does which was you know, just typical Donald Trump, and that was amusing. We've had lesser-known candidates come in in costume and actually put on performances before you know, actually filling out the paperwork. We have candidates that have come in and paid their $1,000 in pennies, you know, silver dollars, sequentially numbered $2 bills, 500 of them. and Bitcoin? <laughs> we, we, have, we don't accept Bitcoin yet. That's right. That's right. We will, we will see what happens. But And then in New Hampshire, we always hold a lesser known forum for the candidates that are not well known. And uh, we just had one a week or say, so ago at St. Anselm College. It's always covered by C-SPAN and the local networks. And it's fun to watch those candidates because they are very sincere. They, they believe that they have something to offer the country and they put themselves out there and some of them have some interesting ideas, but it is just a really significant piece of Americana. And it just shows that this political process is open to anybody that wants to engage in it. Well, Secretary of State of New Hampshire, David Scanlon, thank you for joining us in the voting booth. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Nice to be here. 
Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hun Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.